Thanks, Brad. What even happens when we pray? What, what's the significance of it? Why do we do it? I mean, I mean, you think about how much it becomes part of our worship service together. We, we just all pray together at the end of a song before the bumper video goes up. We, we uh, have a call for prayer requests at the end of just about every, uh, every worship service that we have together. Uh, we pray for you throughout the week. We keep drawing attention to prayer. Why do we put so much emphasis on prayer? And maybe you ask these questions when it, when it feels like there's times where it's not being answered or we understand God's all-powerful, he knows all things, why do we need to turn to him for, for these things? What is so special about prayer? Well, I, I think in, in our chapter today, or chapters, chapters eight and nine, we get a little bit of an answer to that question. We're working our way through the book of Revelation uh, that, that has taken us through the end of the year. And last week, we started to get into some of the judgment passages. Last week, we saw that in response to this glorious, majestic picture of God, that this, this God who's, who's created all things, who's do all things, that in and of himself is so utterly majestic that the only proper response is to turn to him in worship. And as he becomes our priority, this God becomes our priority, we, we long for him to restore things in this world that have gone astray, that are broken. We want this majestic God to make things right. And, and so while we don't celebrate, we don't rejoice in the fact that there's uh, hard passages like the one that was just read, we do not only see that there is a need for things to be made right, but we long for the day when all that is broken is made new. Well, this week we have, I mean, as you just heard what was read for us, another judgment passage, but it is given to us in a slightly different lens. Because what we see in, in Revelation 8 and 9 is that this is judgment that comes in response to prayer. That this is Jesus working to restore things as a response to what his people have been praying. Look at Revelation chapter eight, starting in verse one. It says, when the lamb, when Jesus opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel uh, came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose up before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar and threw it down to the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning and an earthquake. So again, to catch us up to the story, last week we, we looked at the, the first six seals that were open and now the seventh seal is open and it produces silence. But it also produces the next step or, or the next image that's being used, these seven trumpets that are being blown, this next image uh, for judgment being used. The seventh seal opens and it produces silence and these seven trumpets. And, and as we see that this is all coming in response to the prayers of the saints. Now, the last time we saw prayers and altar mentioned together was back in chapter six. It was the crying out of those who were martyred, those Christians who died from being faithful to Jesus. And the cry that they had was, how long, O Lord? How long until you avenge our blood, our deaths? How long until you make things right? And we talked about that we have very similar prayers to that, don't we? How long will this suffering continue? 
How long will people continue to, to go through sickness or loss of health or, or damage to their lives? How long will, will I keep wanting this good thing that you've made me to desire but not have it? How much longer do I need to wait? How long will we see people suffer? How long will we see fighting and wars happen? How long will we continue to see people die? How long until you make things new? And as an answer to that question, we see these prayers of the saints that go up and the response of chapters eight and nine is saying, now. Now these prayers are being addressed. Now there is a response. This judgment that happens in these two chapters are the response to those prayers of the saints. So a couple uh, quick notes to make about this judgment. This isn't the final judgment that we'll read about later on in the book of Revelation. And, and there's, there's a couple uh, reasons why we'd say, we would say that. First and foremost, there, there's a number that keeps being repeated in these judgments. It's one third, one third of the earth that is destroyed, one third of the sea and the rivers and all that stuff. It, we've talked about before that numbers had, had a lot of meaning to uh, the Jewish people at the time. So uh, we've seen numbers like two and four and seven and a thousand and 12 and, and all these numbers have different meaning. Most of those numbers, we would say, have a good meaning, like the number seven that comes up all the time. It's this number of perfection, of completion, that we that would be said is a good number. But there were also some numbers that were considered bad, and fractions were bad numbers. And I think I just heard an amen from people who hated math class in high school. Like, I always said fractions were bad. But fractions were bad in the Jewish mind because they weren't complete. They weren't fulfilled, they, they needed something more. And so as these judgments are being said, our fractions, our one-third, they're not complete. They're waiting for something more to be made final, to be made whole and complete. So it's not the final judgment for that. But the other reason is all throughout these chapters, we see the purpose of this judgment is, is not merely to respond to sin, not merely to respond to going against God's glory. The judgment that we see in chapters eight and nine is a call for repentance, a call to see where people have gone astray and to turn back to this God. So I, I'm going to give us a, a little statement on what Revelation 8 and 9 is about, and there is much rejoicing. He only went three minutes today. This is fantastic. Uh, we still have a lot more to do, but I'm going to tell you what it is that these two chapters are about. So this is Jesus using judgment to deal with sin. So Jesus is using judgment to deal with sin in response to the prayers of his people for the purpose of repentance. So Jesus dealing with sin responding to the prayers of the people uh, to lead to repentance. And this judgment is, is coming out in two different ways in these two chapters. First, we see Jesus removing what people want to show what we truly need, which is himself. So he removes what we want, but he also gives us what we want to show us the destructive power of sin. So this, these two chapters are about judgment for the purpose of repent, uh, repentance, which comes from removing what we want or giving us what we want. Hey, and I think that becomes really clear as we look at what the background of these, these trumpets would be. I, I've, I've said it just about every week, and you're probably sick of me saying it, but guess what? We still have about 10 more weeks in the series, so I have lots of opportunities to keep saying this. When we find an image in the book of Revelation, we go to the Old Testament to figure out what is happening there. And the, the trumpets that are being described, the passage that was just read to us, sounds a whole lot like the plagues that come from the book of Exodus. 
And so if you were to read Exodus chapters 7 through 12, you, you would see very similar language to this, but we're also told what the purpose of the plagues are. The plagues, first and foremost, is to, to call Egypt to repent, to, to change their mind about enslaving God's people, uh, Israel, to repent there. But there's, there's other aspects to, to the plagues as well. They show God's power, even over the mighty nation Egypt, the most powerful nation in the world at the time. God is showing that he is greater than them and their gods. People thought the Egyptian gods, they must be the true gods. Look at how powerful Egypt is. And God demonstrates that he is greater than they are. But also, these plagues are a response to the prayers of the people. Exodus chapter two, I think it's verses 23 through 25. Uh, it says that God heard the cries of his people and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then that puts in place this plan to rescue his people. So the plagues are there for repentance, for power, and, for, uh, and from prayers. Repentance, power, prayers. And so as we look at, at the, the book of Revelation, as we see these trumpets that are being done, they're being done for the same thing. They're in response to the prayers of the saints, which we just read. It's showing God's power over anything else on this world. But the purpose of these, uh, these trumpets is to bring about repentance. So people would turn to God, turn back to him. We see this done, as we said, in two different ways. First, by removing what we want. The first way that we see judgment is by removing what we want. And this comes from those first four trumpets that are blown. The first trumpet, uh, which sounds a whole lot like the seventh plague of the book of Exodus, produces hail. Now, I don't need to explain to people in the state of Colorado how devastating hail can be, let alone when you add fire and also blood to hail. We're told that a third of the earth is destroyed. A second trumpet is blown, which sounds like the first plague of the book of Exodus, where water is turned into blood. But in Exodus, it was just the Nile River that was done that. This is a third of the sea, which ends up destroying a third of the creatures in the sea and a third of the ships that were in the sea. Then we have the third trumpet, which again, sounds like the first plague where water becomes undrinkable but it affects a third of the rivers and all tributaries, brooks and streams and the like. And we finally get to the fourth trumpet, which is the ninth plague of the book of Exodus, which is darkness. So I said that these, these judgments are removing what it is that we want. And let me try to explain what I mean. So as we look at all uh, uh, these first four plagues or, or trumpets and what they're producing, they all impact different parts of this, this planet that we live on. I mean, the earth itself, the seas, rivers, light. And if you think about what life was like at this time, all commerce, all life was tied to this earth. I mean, it doesn't quite land with us because uh, you, can, you can create money, you can create uh, a, a lot of value for your life by things that aren't necessarily tangible right now. You can have an entire business that's up on the cloud that can't be affected by things tangible. You can be someone who's a thought leader that, that's uh, able to make a living just because of things that go to your, your head. Uh, you can have a lot of intellectual property, but if you think Think about at the time here, all commerce and so all security in life was tied to this earth. I mean, you made money by growing plants or by doing transport or by fishing or, or uh, along the likes. And so what's happening here as the earth is being affected, it's the benefit of the earth that's being affected as well. 
I mean, this is people's livelihoods. This is their security in life. And so as you think about those things that we, we want to feel safe, we want to feel secure, we want to provide for our family, we want those things. But what we see here is God bringing judgment onto this earth, this earth that he created, that he's called good, that he has made all these things. But he's judging in a way that's removing those things that we so want in this life, the things that we're desperate for even at times. Even think about how much of the earth is tied to our comfort, that we expect things to go pretty much planetarily, the same thing as it did yesterday and the day before and the day before that. And when things don't go normally, like we, we, all, we all comment on it. Say, hey, did you see the eclipse yesterday? That's something so different and weird. Or when there's a natural disaster, it makes us feel really dissettled. Like things aren't supposed to go like this. That's why we might sing songs like, the sun will come up tomorrow as a way to comfort ourselves. But what if it didn't? I mean, first and foremost, we would have lost our bottom dollar in a bet, but we also have a lot of reason to not be comforted if that didn't happen, right? If things don't go the way that we expect them to. That the removal of these things that we so want on this earth removes a lot of our comfort. And so it affects a mindset that's really easy for us to slip into. I mean, I can create such a great life for myself here. Like with the things that I work for, that I could produce, that I could have and hold, like I can make things pretty good for myself here. And those are good things. But what happens when we're living for those things? When they become the sole driving force of our life? Who are we when they're gone? Nancy Guthrie uh, makes a point that that I think drives home uh, what these first four trumpets do. She says, uh, don't put your trust in the things of this world they're all vulnerable. They will all eventually fail you. Put your trust in the one who made the earth, the sun, moon, and stars. He can be trusted. I wonder if there's a correction in this for us as well. That as I said, it's really easy for us to slip into that mindset of these things that I can produce, that if I just work hard enough, I can make my life essentially how I want it to work. Yeah, things are outside of my control, but if I keep going at it, if things work out just well, I can really create something here for myself. But that question starts to seep in is, who are you really? Who are you without your paycheck or without your job or or your sense of security or your health, your ability to accomplish everyday things, the mundane things? Who would you be if those things weren't there anymore? I mean, these are good things. We, we want these things. God himself has called this, this earth good that he is now pouring out this judgment on. These are good things. But we see the danger when we start to go after these things, if they're our priority. We see the judgment that comes when these things that we want are removed. Because as they are removed, they are to cause us to repent, to see that it's not these things in creation that we truly need. It's the creator himself that as these things are removed, that, that we find something that's truly lasting, that's truly life-giving, that's truly uh, something that can give us hope and, and security and comfort in this life, and that is God himself. We get a little bit of a pause after the first four trumpets as uh, there's this eagle that comes and cries out, woe, woe, woe. 
So these, these next three trumpets, they're going to be different than the first four. So it, it gets a little bit muddied here. We had uh, seven seals before, and now there's seven trumpets, but also the last three trumpets are three woes. It, that's not really important. It, it, it draw attention to just the fact that this is different. Something different is happening here. It's pay attention. Look at what's going on. Because what we see is that the judgment is actually going to get worse. So before we saw this judgment, this call to repentance that comes in response to the prayers of the saints that, that is given to, to, uh, to show what happens when the things that we want are removed to help us to see that we truly need God himself. Now we see judgment that comes by God giving us what we want as we see the devastating effects of sin. The fifth trumpet is blown and a star falls from heaven and is given a key to the bottomless pit. First and foremost, all throughout these two chapters, I I, want to make it very clear that God is in control of every bit of this. I mean, we, we look at these des- descriptions and they're terrible. It sounds like chaos. It sounds like, uh, like something that God is, is not in the midst of. I mean, how often do we feel in, in the midst of difficulty? Like God, God must be absent. God must be far away. But all throughout this, these two chapters, God is very much so in control. It starts with Jesus himself opening up these seals, what produces all of this. The angels are given trumpets. They, they don't just have them. It's things that are given to them. God is limiting uh, the judgment that's happening all throughout here, describing what kind of judgment it could be. And here, God himself is the one who gives the key. Now, the natural question is, who is he giving the key to and what is that key for, right? That's, that's a question that we would probably all have. Well, I mean, just simple reading comprehension. It says, a star fell from heaven and was given a key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. We could probably move on. We all got that. You might want more. Uh, I, I imagine you want more. So a bottomless pit uh, is, is a common image throughout the book of Revelation, and it's, it stands for a couple things, but one in particular, it is a place of restraint for God, where God restrains demonic forces uh, throughout the story. And, and so it's a place where, where there's demons, where those, uh, those who have rebelled against God, those who are at, uh, in opposition to God are in that place. And so someone is given a key so that can be open, so that these forces can go out like locusts, we're told, and cause torment and affliction on others. Now, the most common reading is that this key is given to Satan himself to, to lead and command these people to go out. And, and they're described, as we said, as, as locusts, which sounds a lot like the eighth plague, or, uh, yeah, eighth plague from the book of Exodus. And yet there's limits that are put on these, these forces that are sent out. They're told not to affect those who have been sealed, back from chapter 7, not to affect those who are God's people, that they will be protected in the midst of it. They're told that this would go for a limited amount of time. It says five months that they're allowed to do this. And it says that they're limited in in what they could do. They're not to touch creation itself. They are to go and cause torment on those who are not part of God's people. And yet we don't take it to be literal as these are literal locusts that are going out. The the imagery that's used throughout this is pointing to a deeper meaning. It's pulling from Joel chapter one and two, and it's showing us that these aren't literal locusts, that these demonic forces are, are called out to do exactly what the locusts did in Exodus, to bring about repentance, to show God's power as a response to the prayers of the people. Look at Revelation chapter nine starting in verse seven. 
gets harder to turn the pages the further back in the Bible you go. <laughs> Revelation chapter 9, starting in verse 7. It says, In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their head were what looked like crowns of gold. Their, forces were, uh, their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplate like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. Their power was to hurt people for five months is in their tails. And they have a king over them, uh, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew was uh, Abaddon. And in Greek, he was called Apollyon. Both of those essentially translate to destroyer. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. And and so what this imagery is doing, as it's drawing from Joel's chapters one and two, it's showing us that these are horrible, dreadful creatures that they're unnatural. There's so much of what's natural in them, and yet they create this perversion that's like taking God's creation and perverting it here. It's showing how destructive they are, how they are going out to torment. It's not telling us that these are helicopters. It's telling us that these are creatures that are going out against those who have rebelled against God. That they are not those, uh, it's going out against those who are not sealed, that they have turned away from God, that they've been enticed by sin, that they think that there's fulfillment outside of him. Because oftentimes we think about the, the demonic forces, oh, they're, they're, they're going out to attack God, but, but right here, like, there's, there's nothing to win there. That's a, that's a losing battle. They're instead going against those who are not sealed who they themselves have turned away from God. And maybe, maybe that shocks us a little bit. Like, why would, why would Satan lead demonic forces to go and do that? Would, wouldn't he reward their loyalty that they've been doing exactly what he's done, that he has turned away from God? He's rebelled against him. And now there's people who have done the same. Wouldn't he, like, reward them for that? See, the problem with evil is evil doesn't find a kin, someone friendly and doing the same thing. Evil just always finds someone new to destroy. That's what we see here. As these people have turned away from God, as they've turned to other things, as they've been enticed by sin, we see the end result of that is torment, is pain, is being destroyed. This is people being given exactly what they want. This is the end of what sin looks like. I mean, so often we talk about how sin is being attractive. It's something that looks desirable. I mean, why else would we turn away from such a glorious and majestic God unless if we saw something that we think looks better or is more fulfilling or or at least is more immediate to my life? That it's something that looks good. It looks like it would be great to have. And yet here we see the true face of sin. Maybe we think of that tempting image that comes of us getting to count the profits that comes as a result to our greed, or we we think of someone who's not our spouse, or we think of the great power that we get to have. I mean, sure, it's at the expense of others, but but this this image that we have of, of this incredible power and significance and value that we feel on this earth, that's such an attractive image to us. And yet what we have in Revelation 19 is the unveiling of that image, Scooby-Doo style, to show something horrific underneath. See, sin is not some good that God keeps us from. 
that if he just didn't have all these rules, things would be so much better, that we could do the things that we want to do, and he doesn't need to get bent out of shape about things. See, we tend to picture sin as something small or private or something that I could work on on my own. I mean, who's really impacted by this? Who's really hurt by me doing this thing? I can can fix it. I'll get my act together. I, I can sort this thing out. And so we don't understand why God gets so upset about something so small, so insignificant to us. And yet a passage like this helps us to understand that sins are sins because of what they are by their nature. It's a rebellion against the majestic God of the universe. But it's also partaking in something evil itself. That that sin is is something evil in and of itself. It's not something small or insignificant or tiny that, that we can sort out on our own. That what we see here is underneath that tempting image is something that is terrifying and horrific as evil repays itself later on. As we delight in these things, we see eventually evil's true face. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. It's not the image we tend to have when we're tempted to sin. And yet we see that that's exactly what sin leads to. And yet, in the midst of all of this, we said that God has protected his people, that those who are sealed have been set free in all of this, that they are not facing these effects. It sounds a lot like Jesus' own words. This is from Luke chapter 10. Jesus had sent out his disciples, and they're coming back, and they say, man, even the demons are subject to us. We we have this new ability. We have power beyond our wildest dreams that, that demons are even listening to us. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Hmm, that's a really interesting way of putting it. In verse 19, and behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Man, where did we just read about scorpions? Anyways, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, that you have this power, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's why we rejoice. The comfort of this passage comes to those who are sealed, those who are saved by this very Jesus, that their names are written in heaven. And the comfort continues as the passage goes on. As the sixth trumpet is blow, the second woe happens. And it sounds a lot like the last plague of the book of Exodus, and in fact, the worst one, which is death. Death in Revelation 9 for a third of mankind. I mean, we say in the midst of all this, as these horrible judgments are being poured out, as the earth is being affected, as people are being tormented, as there is death that's occurring here, I mean, surely people will repent. I mean, looking at all of this that's happening, looking at all of these terrible things, this would cause people to turn back to God. Seeing all of this devastation, I mean, it's got to produce some effect. The purpose we said of this, this is not the final judgment. The purpose is so that people can repent. The warning is there. There is time. People will change, won't they? People will turn to this God. Verse 20. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, 
which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. We don't see, at least not here, we don't see some sort of mass repentance in the face of judgment. That's because people have exactly what they want. I mean, even as sin is unmasked for what it is, people still look longingly and adoringly at the mask. That being turned over to the things that they want is exactly what they want, and they trust in their gods or the God that they've made themselves to be. They trust in the fact that they have complete control over their life, all while being tormented, all while listening to things that can't see or hear or walk. I I think a passage like this might help us to take our own sin seriously. That while those who are sealed are are, uh, protected in the midst of this, we still can very easily have parts of our life that we haven't turned over to God for or that we've minimized in our life. Uh, it's, It's not really that big of a deal. Like it's not really impacting people. But as we see what's behind the temptation to sin here, what's behind the mask, that ought to send us running back into the arms of our Savior. That we understand as we read a passage like this that sin is not something, it's not some good thing that God is keeping from us, or He hasn't arbitrarily drawn some lines that don't do these things just because, I don't know. We see that sin itself is evil. It is a rebellion against God. That as much as we might be enticed by, as much as we might think that there's something good here, there's something immediate, we see that the end result is evil being repaid with evil. Maybe that helps change our mentality as we are being tempted to turn away. Maybe that changes our perspective as we are seeing something as good and minimizing it. That we see instead what's behind the mask. We see instead the reason why God has a way that's better, that's for our good and for his glory. So we live lives of praise for him and telling others about him. Maybe this, a passage like this helps us to develop a greater love for people. That, that as we read this, that, that those who have been saved by the blood of Jesus are sealed. They're protected in the midst of this. That's not something, though, that makes us feel settled. Oh, he's got it all. I don't have to do anything. I just have to grab my popcorn, sit and wait and watch. Or worse than that, maybe we celebrate this destruction that's coming on others. As we read about this torment that's being poured out, maybe someone's face comes to mind and we smile. Let's never get to that point. I I think of the words that Jesus gave in Luke 10. Do not celebrate that you have this power, that you have this privileged position. Celebrate because your name is written in the book of life. And we don't read this as 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 meaning that we don't have to do anything or meaning that, that we celebrate that this judgment is being poured out. We instead celebrate in the only grounds that we have that we have been saved and sealed by this Jesus. So a passage like this actually drives us to tell others about him, to tell others about how they too can find life now and life to come in this Jesus. A passage like this ought ought to drive us to to remember uh, where we've come from, that we have been rescued when we were literally and figuratively hell-bent 
And yet we have been rescued. We have been saved. We have been restored in the midst of that. That while we too were enticed by the things of this world, that we ignored the glory of God, that we delighted in evil things that would have been our downfall, that's not where we are anymore. That's not who we are. And so we tell others how we have been saved and we spend our days praising him. But I think as well, a passage like this helps us to see what is the purpose and power of prayer. That all of this comes in response to the prayers of the saints. So that we look at this life as so much of it is trying to find a place of comfort or security or joy or a future or whatever it might be. We, there's so many things that we might try to grab onto to find those things. Here we see that it's only in God, only in the creator that we truly find those things. And so we turn to him in the midst of all that this life has as this God who hears, as this God who works through prayer, we turn to him there. So we should pray. Pray constantly for justice, for renewal, for righteousness, for repentance, for mercy. Because we have seen in a passage like this, God hears these prayers. We see in a passage like this, God works through these prayers. We see in a passage like this that we are joined to the work God will do to restore this earth through our prayers. So often, as I wrap up my time up here, I, I, I end us in prayer. And we close our eyes and I pray and, and the, the worship band just magically got up here somehow. We, we don't know how that happened. We had our eyes closed. Shouldn't they have their eyes closed? I'm gonna break that right now as I'm gonna invite the worship team to come up because it feels like it'd be a missed opportunity if I just let us in prayer right here and then we ended rather than doing exactly what this passage starts with, the prayers of the saints. I wanna give us all an opportunity to pray where we're at, in our seats, quietly so we're not distracting other people around us, but using this incredible gift that's been given to us, prayer, communication with this God, turning to him in the midst of all things. And let me, let me give us a couple ideas of what we might be praying for in this time. As you hear about how it's the salvation in Jesus that gives us life, it's in response to this glorious God that we have been saved solely by the blood of Jesus. Maybe this is a time that you could pray for your salvation. If you trusted in other things, if you haven't trusted in this Jesus, I, I encourage you, pray for mercy. Pray for his spirit to fill you, trusting that it's solely in him that you are saved. Maybe this is a time to pray for your salvation. Are we sealed? Are we saved solely by the blood of Jesus? Or maybe you know people in your life who haven't prayed for their salvation. People that you love, that you care for desperately in your life, that you are praying would come to know, not, not to trust in the temptations of sin around us, but to trust in the one who can truly satisfy. I encourage you to pray for that in this time. Or maybe uh, there's something that you're struggling with, a temptation that you continue to feel. This is turning it over to God, not to minimize it, not to say it's insignificant, but to see the evil for what it is and to turn that over to God here. Or maybe you see a place that needs restoration in this world. The prayers of the saints was, how long, O Lord? What might you pray, how long, O Lord, for? We don't have to go far. 
So there's wars and rumors of wars and, and turmoil and, and natural disasters. Where do we need to see restoration on this earth? I'm going to give us a couple minutes. We can pray where we're at. The band will play softly and, and will call us back to respond to God and worship through music together. But we'll take a couple minutes. Wherever you are, what is your prayer that God hears, that is effective, that joins us in the work that he's doing, that we long for to see all things made new? Let's pray all together.